0: Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview that took place earlier this month at KubeCon's Kubernetes on Edge virtual conference between Matt Truffiro and Craig McLucky. As a co-founder of the Kubernetes project and co-creator of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, Craig is a modern-day legend in the space. He left Google in 2016 to found Heptio and currently serves as VP of product management at VMware. In this interview, Craig discusses the Kubernetes origin story, his current work in the Modern Application Platform Business Unit at VMware, and why he says Edge will be a highly disruptive area of innovation. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors.
1: Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and ZenLayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is NetFoundry, what do IoT apps, Edge Compute, and Edge data centers have in common? They need simple, secure networking. Unfortunately, SD-WAN and VPN are square pegs in round holes. NetFoundry solves the headache, providing software-only, zero-trust networking embeddable in any device or app. Learn more at netfoundry.io.
0: And now, please enjoy this interview between Craig McLucky, Vice President of Product Management at VMware, and your host, Matt Truffiro. Hi, this is Matt Trefiro, CMO of edge infrastructure company
2: Vapor.io and co-chair of the Linux Foundation's State of the Edge project. I'm the host of Over the Edge, a weekly hour-long interview-style podcast on edge computing and the future of the internet. You can find it at overtotheedgepodcast.com and on all the major podcasting platforms including iTunes and Spotify. Today we're coming to you live from the Kubernetes on Edge virtual conference, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Craig McClucky, currently VP of product at the Modern Application Platform Business Unit at VMware, but also one of the co-founders of the Kubernetes project, the driving force behind the formation of the CNCF, and the former CEO and co-founder of Heptio, along with Joe Beta. We're going to talk to Craig about his career in technology, including the origins of Kubernetes. We're also going to cover the past, present, and future of all things Kubernetes and Edge. Hey, Craig, how are you doing today?
3: I'm doing really well, Matt. Thanks for having me on.
2: Oh yeah, this is terrific. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. You and I have uh, been friends for a while, but we've never been in a yes, yeah, never been in an environment like this. So this is really, really kind of fun to do this. How did you even get started in technology?
3: It's funny, like I was, I was kind of thinking about that, and I, I think the answer was the Commodore sixty four. As with so many uh, kids of my generation, um, you know, as a, a sort of nerdy teenager, I discovered that programming was uh, a great kind of creative outlet for me, and so I spent most of the years from between 10 and 17, I guess, coding. And then I took a little break from it, believe it or not, during college. I actually decided to pursue a different direction, electrical engineering, which in South Africa meant real <laughs> electricity. I don't think, I'm not sure that Microsoft already understood that when they interviewed me, but uh, I didn't actually do a lot of formal CS uh, coursework, but it was close enough that uh, enabled me to get a job at
2: Microsoft and the rest has been a great journey. Yeah, that's great. And so when did you leave Microsoft and uh, go to Google?
3: So I left Microsoft, I was back in about roughly 2009, 2010, somewhere around there. My first project at Google was, I kind of lucked out. There was this thing called, uh, well, it became Google Compute Engine. It was called Big Cluster at the time, but that's where I met Joe Beta. And uh, sort of starting point was really just working on bringing traditional enterprise VMs into the uh Google data center, and it was a it was a really fun project. I learned a lot about a lot about Google's infrastructure, a lot about some of the challenges of actually bringing those enterprise grade workloads into that sort of cloud environment, and it, it really set
2: me up on the journey that I've been on ever since. How did you go from Compute Engine to Kubernetes?
3: You know, it's an interesting story. Um, you know, Joe and I, you know, poured our hearts and souls into building Compute Engine, and. We felt like it was great technology. You know, it had a really clean, elegant API. Had a lot of very favorable performance attributes. Some really interesting networking capabilities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it was also kind of interesting because, in some ways, it was almost too little, too late. You know, when we started the project, you know, Amazon had already opened a huge lead in the ecosystem, and we were starting to see a really strong convergence of ISVs and a lot of other organizations around the um, the Amazon ecosystem. So. And we stepped back a little bit and we're really thinking about like well what can we do to kind of change the change the game some? How can we be a little disruptive? We knew that it was gonna take a while for Google to build out the strength and the go-to-market side of the house, you know, get that enterprise readiness that it needed to really compete, which I think they've done a fabulous job under Thomas Kurian, by the way. But um but it was also clear that if we didn't do something quite disruptive, we would, you know, have a really hard time competing over time. And that that really motivated me to think outside the box a little bit and uh, look at other options.
2: When we met, I was the CMO of Mesosphere. And what I think is really interesting about the CNCF and Kubernetes origin story is that you actually embraced these alternative technologies. Can you you tell me a little bit about what drove that thinking and how that became part of the foundational ethos of the CNCF? You
3: know, I, I remember this one moment where Joe and I were kind of working on Compute Engine. And it was it was really kind of sad because I think the world had had an opportunity to normalize on something like the a virtual machine image definition as, as something that could be relatively ubiquitous, but that just never happened. And I remember turning to Joe while we were kind of working on the project, we just had this sort of like moment where I was like, you know, whoever solves the problem associated with packaging and deploying software atomically, kind of like the way we do within Borg, is ultimately going to just had this amazing sort of you know, run of it. They're going to be able to be quite disruptive to the industry. But we were busy on, on Compute Engine. So eventually, um, once we got to a point where you know, Compute Engine was you know, largely kind of ideated and was, was on Rails, we, we started playing with some ideas. And one of the things that immediately caught our attention was Docker. It was, was funny because I remember you know, someone mentioning this to me like way, 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 way back when, way before Docker was even popular, like, hey, you should really be paying attention to this. It's, it's kind of a neat model. And when we started really getting stuck into it, it was it was like one of those moments where like, you know, wow, we should really have thought of this, right? Like it's it was such an elegant way to, you know, express a unit of, you know, um, deployment. But the thing that was most elegant about it wasn't necessarily the technology, which was, you know, by Google's way of thinking, somewhat mundane. It was really the experience that had been created around, that recognition that that Linux syscall there was, um, was such a powerful abstraction. And that really got the wheels turning. You know, we started thinking about like, well, what would this look like done upright? And there were certainly some projects in the in the uh, in the ecosystem that were interesting, but more importantly, the way that you know my other friend Brendan Burns, who we were working with at the time, described it is like we kind of had the puzzle box when everyone was trying to figure out you know how to fit the pieces together. We'd seen how this would work at scale, and that really motivated us to do something new. and And it, it became obvious that we had to do this through the lens of the community. You know, once we we just saw like the disproportional level of attention and traction and engagement Docker was receiving you know, versus the relative maturity of the technology. It was clear that if we could create something righteous, meaning that had a lot of the sensibilities that we would come to take for granted at a place like Google, that we could do it in a way that brought the community with us, we could create something quite special. And I don't know which of the two it was that um, you know kind of originally came up with a crazy idea to... Uh, to make a run at an open source project, which became Kubernetes. It was either Brendan or Joe. I, I just don't remember. But they're like, hey, what would it look like to do this? And, you know, I thought about it a bit and we're like, yeah, like, let's give it a go and see what happens. And, you know, it, it, it definitely worked out okay in the end.
2: I think it did. I think, you know, one of the things I've really always enjoyed about you is how methodical you are in your strategic planning. You know, there's always some game theory equation going on in your head. And I think that is why CNCF ended up being the way it is. I think a large part of it had to do with just your conviction that this was the proper way to change an industry. And, and it certainly has. I and mean, I think we say Kubernetes has changed the industry and it was is continuing to change the industry. So somewhere along the line, you left Google and you co-founded a, a little company called Heptio. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: While I was at Google, I was working on um... You know, so Kubernetes was on Rails and I started to kind of play with some other ideas in the space. You know, what would the next abstraction up look like? You know, how would we think about creating a services ecosystem on top of it? And I was working on a couple of things there, one of which was the uh, Apogee acquisition. And I, I kind of got friendly with Chet Kapoor, who who was the kind of founding CEO of, of Apogee. And he said something to me, which kind of just stuck in my head. You know, he was like, you know, to succeed in a, in a startup, you, you really need to look for a moment of disruption where, you know, the set of incumbents are, are not able to move as quickly as they might like, where there's a high uh, sort of total addressable market, and you're, you're sort of in a situation the featured where sponsor that's of what you can create successful business on. And that like, kind of clicked for me. I was Improving like, wow, we're we never going to see... Oh, have I'm never
1: going to be complicated see these circumstances
3: or again. But it was also, helps
1: you lower for me, um, an edge opportunity edge to in over really kind of step of back a little bit and
3: walk the journey with customers. You know, I looked at... The sort of circumstance where I was thinking about like, well, do I want to do another Kubernetes? Um, So so I thought there would be another Kubernetes in there somewhere, right? Like, you know, some of the ideas around, you know, that eventually evolved into things like service mesh and, and some of those technologies. But the really interesting opportunity for me personally was the opportunity to engage with customers where they were, to be an effective ambassador for this very rich open source community and bridge the gap between enterprise organizations that were looking to get more intrinsically aligned with upstream technology and the communities that were supporting them. And so that's really what caused me to 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 go out and do to help you. And my friend Joe was he had decided to uh, retire, which was kind of hilarious because he loves working.
2: I remember that. I didn't believe him when he, when he tried, but... No, I don't know. Like, anyway, eventually, he was like, hey, when are we doing a startup? When are we are doing a startup? And
3: I, I just want to work with Joe again, too, I'll be honest. Like that was, uh, I've always enjoyed his perspective on things. And so that, that really motivated us, and uh, that one worked out okay, too. So uh, we were very pleased with, with the traction we made in a relatively small amount of time in terms of just helping some larger enterprise organizations start to make this journey towards cloud-native technologies.
2: What was the most surprising thing that you learned on your journey at Heptio?
3: I don't know if this is surprising, but it's something that I would I certainly took to heart as a, as a leader. When I look back on you know what we created and, and the impact that the team we brought together is, is having within my business unit and within VMware, there's no substitute for culture. I think if you can establish a, a very kind of effective cultural bar, if you can design your culture to the problem at hand, And if you hold yourselves to a very high standard, you will, it becomes self-perpetuating. The quality of individuals we brought in have just done tremendous work, you know, within the parameters of the community, within the parameters of VMware, and I couldn't be more proud of just the people. And I think that really just started with being very, very deliberate about the culture we're creating.
2: Over the pillars of the culture.
3: There were, there were kind of three pillars of the culture that we established. The first was what I used to say was honest technology. You know, we are a organization that is in service of the community and in service of our customers. And what we build is honest technology. So, you know, we stand behind the way that we build. We stand behind what we build. We, we take a great degree of pride and delight in creating honest technology. The second kind of, you know, cultural element that, you know, I used to push a lot was carry the fire, like a real passion for disruption. An authentic desire to create something that was bigger than than anyone had seen. And this this willingness to do the hard thing, to walk the hard road when you have to. And then the third element that we we put a lot of, of of emphasis on was we before me. The idea that, you know, it's uh it's about the quality of the team, it's about the quality of the community, it's about doing that little bit of extra work so that someone else doesn't have to do it tomorrow. And obviously, the, there's an ocean of nuance associated with each of those three those three elements. But just having that anchor of you know, culture that was really understandable and, and manifest every day, it informed the decisions that we made, it informed who we hired, informed how we interviewed, and I, I think that really set us up for success.
2: Yeah. And uh, for those who don't know, and probably two people in the audience, Heptio was acquired by VMware, and, uh, you know back when you and I were working closely together, we used to get the question, right? VMs or containers? Like, which is going to win? And uh, I think we knew that the answer was yes. And now I think definitively it's yes. But can you tell me a little bit how Heptio and I guess more importantly to the Kubernetes community, Kubernetes has been integrated into VMware and what is the VMware Tanzu Grid, I believe is the product. Can to kind of navigate us?
3: You know, I see... Containers and VMs as being—they're fundamentally different technologies. One solves a packaging and distribution problem; the other solves a hardware isolation and abstraction problem. And we're certainly seeing often as not a kind of yes and series of outcomes. I think you know almost every vendor now has some form of hypervisor isolated um, you know, Kubernetes or container abstraction, and, and we're certainly no exception to that. You know, for me, when Pat approached us, you know, we certainly weren't looking to sell. I, 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 you know, like we were great, we were having a lot of fun, but it was also clear that to have the impact that I wanted to have on the industry, we we did need a bigger boat. It's like that that scene from Jaws where you you see the size of the opportunity, see the size of the impact you can have, and you you need that bigger boat, right? And what I was so excited about was the opportunity to. Use the strengths that VMware was bringing to the table, that incredibly trusted brand in enterprise computing and awareness of how to actually operationalize at scale, and understanding that you know the first eighty percent of the work is you know you know getting to that eighty percent point point is only twenty percent of the effort right like that last twenty percent of of enterprise technology is really hard there's just an inordinate amount of effort associated with dealing with the edge cases and getting everything set up and you know to me, I saw this uh this impeccable opportunity to be a part of VMware becoming something more than just a virtualization company. Obviously, VMware already was well down the franchise road. Uh, had a lot of different kind of you know businesses, but being in a position where we could build out what I thought of as being a legitimate meta cloud, you know, something that would make on-premises, public cloud, and you know, increasingly the network edge look consistent, was ex- just you know incredibly exciting to me. And so, as I've been on this uh, on this journey, you know, I always think of you know the kind of in my head I'm pretty simplistic. You know, one, I want to deliver a ubiquitous Kubernetes substrate that's consistent everywhere. Two, that's not really interesting unless you have an effective control plane to manage it. And then three, I want to render up the software supply chain that enables developers to produce business outcomes in that destination. And you know, through the initial integration into um, VMware, we just massively extended our reach to all of those existing uh, facilities and became a really strong anchor for VMware's own navigation and migration to support public cloud computing. And then, you know, from a future's perspective, you know, it's all about the edge. Like, the, this is where I see the most excitement, you know, for me personally. I think it's going to be a huge growth area and a highly disruptive area of innovation, you know, over the coming years. And I, I just can't be couldn't be happier to be a part of that, that journey at that a company like
2: VMware. Well, I'm glad you you brought up edge because I was about to transition to that since this is the edge day. So when you say the opportunity at edge, and I won't make you define edge, but I want to see like what what are the opportunities that you see for Kubernetes?
3: Well, I mean, the whole point of Kubernetes was that it would be that Goldilocks abstraction that enables you to treat um you know most infrastructure consistently, and the opportunity here is is no different. You know, I think you know obviously there's a very broad array of definitions for, you know, what edge computing is from, you know, thick edge to thin edge, near edge, far edge, however you want to kind of taxonomize it. And so the starting point, I think, is just having that normalized substrate, that compute substrate that you can then tie back to a control plane. So you can start to reason about your edge, whether it's, you know, geographically distributed, whether it's running in a variety of different, you know, polities, whatever the case may be, as being a common destination. And making that destination accessible to developers that are building physical outcomes is really interesting. We've seen so much excitement and engagement around things like reactive uh, computing patterns. We've seen the emergence of, you know, CDN-based capabilities. That's really addressing the kind of outward flow of, of developer assets, you know, to the Edge device. The really exciting thing is, what about the reverse? Like, how do we start to kind of synthesize and process information that's being generated at the Edge? How do we do that in a topology aware way that's making appropriate use of what computational resources home there, you know balancing computational consumption with network backbone consumption, and that to me is just I could not be more excited about the the opportunity
2: to to look to participate in the, in that part of the journey. so let me unpack that a little bit. so if you think about Kubernetes as being a oversimplistically but i think usefully a platform that will take a container and based on a declaration run it somewhere and in a single data center there's a set of you know common declarations that we might make that the the scheduler can interpret to figure out where those workloads run within that cluster in that data center do you see that metaphor Translating uh, are the ten thousand servers in my my single data center that different from the ten thousand servers in the you know five hundred data centers that are that I might be using at the edge? Do those metaphors translate? You think?
3: I I think they do to a certain extent, but you have to recognize that it it's sort of added complexity to the problem, right? So the the interesting challenge with with edge is, um, you know, one is you're just dealing with the scale of operations within the logical construct of a data center you can afford to have operating model that, that scales you know, somewhat linearly with the number of potential clusters or you know, pick your poison. As you start looking at Edge, it changes the dynamics. You have to have something that scales you know, pretty much. The cost of operations just doesn't scale with the, the deployment topology. Otherwise, things are going to get bad. You can't send an IT operator to every Edge location to deal with something that you have to update, whereas you could do that in the old days. And Kubernetes is just an incredibly important technology from that perspective. It introduces a determinism in terms of how you can reason about deploying something. So you can take that package software and run it there, much like you could in a data center. But the thing that's really elegant about Kubernetes isn't just about like, oh, I can make placement decisions about virtual machine instances. Kubernetes has created a controller pattern. You know, Brennan Burns, one of the founders of the project, is a creative genius as far as I'm concerned. He's also a robotics professor before this and so he was all geeking out about you know kind of control theory and that certainly is a key element of what kubernetes is it's it's not just about containers and deployment it's about creating an appropriate set of control loops so that what's within the boundaries of that controller can be managed at, atomically by that controller so it's it's not just about getting your application out there it's about the care and feeding if something goes wrong the restart dynamics the, the ability to deterministically update it Making informed decisions about scalability in those in those locations without access to a centralized control plane, perhaps. In some situations, you know, I certainly work with a lot of organizations where you know some of those environments are periscoping in their behavior. They might be LTE connected and there might be a network outage, or they might be on a cruise ship that sails out to sea every X months and it's just not connected at all. And Kubernetes lends itself so well to that because it's not just about you know delivering static technology, it's about delivering well thought through controllers that can deal with a lot of those parameters if you can you know if you can think about it you can program it and you can you know push into Kubernetes, and not just at the infrastructure level but increasing at the application level as well Um, so i think that's going to be uh, incredibly powerful
2: so when you think about the edge you know there are some pretty fundamental changes that happen at the access network that last mile so to speak um, you know, a lot of times the ownership of the server <laughs> transfers from a cloud company to an enterprise. You know, how do you, how do you view that that transition? The edge of the last mile market network. Do you see that getting blurrier? Do you do you imagine uh, you know cloud workloads being spawned on private equipment? I mean, how, how do you how do you view that?
3: It's a fascinating topic of discussion. And like, if I I think anyone who tells you they know exactly how it's going to go is probably selling something. I think there's still a lot of figuring out to do, but you know, I'd say there are a couple of trends. We will see the cloud providers come with deeply vertically integrated capabilities that are being rendered out into uh, into those environments, and they have some very strong assets at their disposal. Um, I think we will certainly see some amazing opportunities for organizations to create um, kind of multi-tenant-based outcomes in those types of destinations. So independently of who owns a physical piece of serving gear, there's no reason why you couldn't create an API economy or a, an edge function economy that can leverage out. You know, whoever you know put that piece of infrastructure up there, as long as you can normalize that infrastructure, as long as you can set up the the tenancy model and the the isolation boundaries sufficiently, you're in a situation where there's like whole new economies will, will likely emerge around this. And I think that that landscape will be quite fluid for some time. But yeah, it's it's certainly it's a fascinating dynamic. Exactly as you said, as you. You know, there's these sort of classic boundaries of of ownership. That's very much in flux at the moment.
2: You know, you can run Kubernetes on a on a Raspberry Pi on a device that's actually in the field. And I think it's very different than running Kubernetes on a, you know, on a server that happens to be at the base of a cell tower or in a carrier hotel or in a regional data center. But I think both are reasonable and applicable.
3: Yeah, I do think so. And it's interesting because there's a there's a decent analog here to Linux. If you think about the form factors that Linux is is deployed into. Linux is deployed into everything from cell phone sized devices to mainframes and everything in between. And if you think about what Kubernetes is emerging, is it's effectively a it's a way to program distributed systems patterns. It's a way to kind of deliver of distributed systems patterns. And um, and I think the the analog is pretty clear. You know, I think Kubernetes complements Linux. I'm not sufficiently arrogant to like, assume that it will have the duty cycle that Linux has had. I, I hope it does. I think it likely will. But we still have work to do as a community to make that true. But the the potential of the, the, sort of the versatility of that model, I think, is is quite strong. And uh, we're certainly heading in, in a positive direction with the technology.
2: If you could provide the audience of developers some direction on where you would like to see the community invest in Kubernetes to... Exploit some of the new opportunities at edge. What would you What would you advise them to do? You know,
3: it's interesting. I, I was thinking a little bit about this before we came on. I, I think there's there's obviously normalizing a, a variety of different form factors, making sure that we have effective conformance standards around a variety of different form factors. Effectively, making sure that we get those profiles in place, so that you know, if you're building an application for a certain class of deployment, there's a well qualified profile because you know, when you're running something on Raspberry Pi, it's not going to feel like running something in your, your mainstream data center. So I think that's certainly an area that behooves us to to emphasize and focus on. Interestingly, I've been thinking a fair bit recently about um, the intersection of WebAssembly and, and some of these technologies. You know, there's an interesting little project from Microsoft called Crustit. But When we start looking at the class and shape and nature of things like edge functions, the ability to write a relatively small sliver of code that can run in a massively multi-tenant context, uh, have very high levels of security isolation, it really starts to feel a lot like WebAssembly. And so I'd love to see things like the WebAssembly um, systems interfaces protocols solidify. I think that could become quite interesting in this world. And it's obviously very early days, but um, that's something I'd love to see us. Uh, us think about and you know and then like really tooling up the um, the developer experience around some of those pieces would be quite interesting. Just enabling folks to start thinking about building you know building applications for these these types of, of deployments where various pieces are honed in a variety of different destinations depending on the the sort of cost economics of of where something is run is is going to be quite interesting. And again, it's all going to come back to the control plane. You're not going to be a cool vendor if you don't have a a control plane that. Enables you to deliver outcomes into these types of destinations. Um, at the end of the day, relatively few organizations are going to have the capabilities to operate effectively a, a full on SaaS service to to you know think through the mechanics of how these types of applications are built and delivered and uh, managed and updated and, and observed. And that's going to be interesting. And then the final piece, I think, that's going to be quite interesting. And this is something I don't. Think the community is, is focused quite enough on yet, but it's certainly an area that we're focused on within VMware, which is observability becomes really interesting when you're dealing with something of this net and, and really important. Like, what does it look like? You know, what does APM look like for an edge based solution where you have, you know, a, a pretty fragmented or pretty hierarchical topology? How do you reason about a metric system that's thinking about it? how do you make that sufficiently hierarchical so that you don't overwhelm? the network links with metrics, but you're able to retain what you need to retain from a local deployment perspective. So that's okay. going to be an area of certainly significant emphasis for us. And I think an area that the, the community would do well to pay attention to.
2: Yeah, I think the whole telemetry, the importance of telemetry to edge computing has been underappreciated. And it's not just telemetry come off, coming off the applications, it's telemetry coming off the network. It's telemetry coming off of the operational technology. I mean, if one of your micro data centers out at the edge, goes on to battery power, you probably want to make some intelligent decisions about starting up backup workload somewhere and starting to low balance tra- traffic around. And right now, getting that information is very hard because it's not something that uh, it's, it's probably buried behind some CAN bus interface that you don't have access to as a software developer. And even if you did, you might not know what to do with it. So that telemetry piece, I think you're right. That's really, really underappreciated. From a use case perspective, you know, the autonomous car example is the one that one wants to be every, everybody's favorite. Although I think people that really think about it don't expect the infrastructure to be the driving factor for autonomous vehicles, maybe for coordinating them, but not, not the thing. But if you look like over the next, let's say 18 months, what, what are the use cases that you think are realistically going to emerge that excite you in edge commuting?
3: The two areas where I see the, the most kind of um, energy around are in the retail and manufacturing segments. Um, look, pretty much every segment you can think of is chewing on the edge problem. Retail in particular is an area where I'm seeing things moving very, very quickly. Now, obviously, the, the the global pandemic has forced a lot of retailers to take a long, hard look at how they do business, how they operate. And, you know, the, the old narrative around necessity and invention, we're seeing so much traction there. So getting to a point where we have far more computational resource in in a form factor that is appropriate for the destination that is sufficiently operable that you can roll it out to a, a pretty broad array of sites to unlock everything from, you know, relatively simple, you know, experiences in small, you know, branch locations or small retail locations to running, you know, really high end inferencing workloads and creating these next generation shopping experiences is interesting. This that segment in particular is moving very quickly. Um, manufacturing, I think, over a slightly longer horizon is becoming, you know, very, very focused on getting better computational resource and you know a better control of the computational resource. But the problem with a lot of manufacturing is that that's generally tied to a pretty high capex moment, and it's a it's a sort of much more kind of complex up.
2: Oh, well, you mentioned COVID-19, and you know my experience is that every manufacturer had a 10-year automation plan that's now a four-year automation plan <laughs> because of COVID, because nobody wants to be stuck in that position again where they're shutting down the lines because they can't get people close enough. Yeah, really, really interesting times. So, Craig, what do you think the biggest challenges are to adoption of edge devices and edge technology?
3: It always comes back to the people, skills. You know, the technology, I think, is is emerging being able to identify you know just given the noise being able to distill the signal from the noise and uh, you know make smart bets you know getting the skill set in place that's necessary to you know start running a series of experiments you know navigating so that it, you're not making these kind of huge you know ca- capex heavy investments that you can actually start to build into what you're doing and and build your organizational skills at the same rate as you you're starting to engage and deploy these technologies is is key the control plane you have to have a a sort of a hierarchical highly available control plane to support this that's necessary because it's not just about you know i think a lot of folks overemphasize well what does it take to deploy a kubernetes to this destination well it's that's one thing updating it that's another but then like how do i deploy an application into 10,000 retail locations how do i run an experiment in two of those and get the results of that experiment how do i make a informed decision when i'm ready to deploy that update out to the other 9998 locations if you're running a sufficiently large operation and you know without that control plane technology getting really buttoned down and being able to reason about the control plane is something that spans both the infrastructure but also the supply chain that renders those application capabilities components experiences is going to be key and i'd say this the second area and this is you know as we start looking at the energy and impetus to start to have more multi-tenant um, edge-based facilities is going to be uh, a challenge. Um, you know, Kubernetes itself was certainly never built as a kind of natively multi-tenant environment. So being able to have better lines of isolation, security, a tenancy model that's smart for much lighter weight kind of function-like use cases is going to be a, a big a big challenge for this,
2: for this industry. Sounds like a lot of exciting work to get done. So, Craig, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. How can people find you online at and learn learn more about your work?
3: Well, you can always at me at uh, CMCLUCK on Twitter. And then I occasionally post blogs on Medium if you look at my name, Craig Plucky. Yeah, love to hear from folks. And uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun chatting to you, Matt.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot, Craig. Really appreciate it.
0: That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven. Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, ZenLayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening.
1: NetFoundry connects edge compute islands with a simple software-only solution. In minutes, over any internet connection, the Edge Compute Island gets zero-trust, high-performance networking. It is a turnkey solution with the infrastructure delivered by NetFoundry as Network as a Service and available in partnership with leading MSPs, SIs, and Edge data centers. Each network is fully programmable via simple web console or by powerful APIs and pre-integrated with every major cloud provider. Go to netfoundry.io to learn more.